being seated, let's open our Bibles this morning back to the book of Romans. Uh, we find ourselves in uh, chapter 5 and picking up with verse 12, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, appreciate Evan filling in for me last week while we were vacationing, and uh, I had a chance to, I uh, usually on vacation, tune into the 815 service and uh, participate in that worship experience online. And Evan always does such a wonderful job for us, and uh, I always find myself challenged by his messages, and I know that uh, you feel that same way as well, but it's good to be back. Let me encourage you uh, to join us at Water Rampage this uh, evening at 6.30, right? 6.30 to 8.30, and uh, we all want to be there, be a part of that, bring a dessert. It's always a great time of fellowship. Uh, we were rained out last year, so I think we're looking forward to this. And uh, I tell you, I want to pull a prank on all the kids and all the young parents that are going to be there. So if all of us who are senior adults, if we would just put on our swimsuits and rush the pool at the same time. Man, can you imagine that vision coming at you? And uh, well, we may not want to do that, scar the kids for life. Uh, the message this morning is entitled, What Reigns Rules. That is, whatever it is that dominates your life, whatever you have deemed as being most important in your life, what is preeminent in your life, then that will set the guidelines for how you're going to live each day. Uh, it will determine where you spend all of your time. It will determine how you uh, are going to live your life, uh, what you're going to do with your time, resources, and energy. All of that is determined by what reigns in your life, what you have deemed as being a priority, what you deem as being most important. For the Apostle Paul, and especially as we come to chapter 5 and verses 11 through 12, for Paul, this is, this is a very simple thing, that whatever reigns in your life, it either brings death or it brings life and vitality. Uh, for Paul, the, the choice is, is clear, it's clear cut, that you either choose that you, whatever reigns in your life is either a path that will lead to life or a path that will lead to death. I've thought about that a great deal over the past two weeks, what Paul is saying in, in these verses. These are arguably some of the most theologically rich verses, I think, verses 12 through 21 in chapter 5 of Romans, then uh, richer than, than arguably any of the other verses to be found in this, in this book. And so I've been thinking about it a great deal and thinking about it because Paul uses five times uh, that word rain in these, in these verses and talking about what it is that, that will reign over your life and determine your destiny. And in reflecting upon that, I thought nowhere is that better revealed when he talks about death or life. Nowhere as a pastor have I seen that better revealed than at a funeral service. A funeral is an interesting social phenomenon. And I've seen funerals change a great deal over, over the past 40 years. And I did my first funeral service, graveside service, in 1982. I keep funeral records. I don't keep wedding records. I keep funeral records. The first funeral I ever did was 1982. Serving on a church staff, graveside service of an elderly lady. And I begin to contrast 
funerals early on in my ministry and how funerals have changed and what they have revealed and what they have exposed over these 40 years since, 40 years this year. Because what what once characterized funerals predominantly, Christian funerals, you know, some things are a constant. Some things never change in a funeral. There, there is always grief. Grief is always the elephant in the room. We all naturally grieve whenever we, uh, we, are, we, are, we are burying and performing a funeral service for, for our loved one. Grief is present. But what I've noticed with the passage of years is the absence of hope. That hope seemingly has been lost. Oh, from my perspective, when you're doing a funeral service, I can, I can see it in the eyes of those in attendance. Not only can I see it in their eyes and their body language, I, it, it's, a, it's a hopelessness that, that you can feel. And I think to myself, especially these last 10 years, as opposed to the predominant theme of hope that you had in a funeral service 30, 40 years ago, what has changed over time? I'm no sociologist, I'm no philosopher, I'm just an observer of, of human life. And I've thought about that because I, I think about 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was a time uh, when for probably 90% of the funerals that I did, uh, those individuals, uh, their faith in their church was the hub of their life. It informed their life. It was their community, their, their church. Their life was built around the church. Their family, the life of their family was built around the church. There was a rhythm. There was a pattern of life. Faith in church informed their life. And so they would come to a time of death in that family where faith was center, where the life of the church and the community of faith was center. And even though there was grief, there was hope. Like Paul said, we grieve, but not as if there is no hope. But with the passing of years, faith and church has become, for the great majority, something that is incidental, something that is ancillary, something that is an afterthought no longer a central place and central role in, in the life of the individual or the life of the family. It is something that, that is observed on holidays, primarily Easter and, and Christmas. It, uh, religion receives a, a token nod, and, and maybe even on Mother's Day or Father's Day, I see a great many adult children who are guilted into going to church by mothers and fathers who say, oh, all I want on Mother's Day is to have my family on the pew with me. And so when faith and the life of the church is no longer central, when death comes, and listen, it always does. When death inevitably comes, you find a people that are frightened, who are scared, who are uncomfortable around death, who see death as the greatest 
evil and you can see the hopelessness and you can feel the despair in their room because they are confronted with their own mortality. Lucretius was a first century poet, philosopher, Roman philosopher, poet, contemporary of Paul. This is a man who who had no regard even for the Roman gods, much less the God, the living God. He dismissed all of that in in his mind. And yet, even a philosopher like Lucretius talked about the irrationality of, of fearing death. That when people fear death, it leads to irrational behaviors. They look for ways of escape. They look for ways of withdrawal. They look for ways of of isolation. They live with a sense of fear and dread, which is not life at all. So as Paul comes to these verses, five times, verses 14, you can see it in verse 14, twice in verse 17, and twice in verse 20, Five times Paul uses the word rain to describe the forces. And remember, for Paul, the idea of sin, hamartia, Paul sees sin as not just your wrongs or my wrongs. Paul sees it as something much more. It is much greater than, than the sum of our, of our wrongdoings. For Paul, sin has a personality of its own. It has a presence of, of its own. So he talks about and uses this word rain to describe the forces that are contending for, for my life and yours. Forces that desire to reign and to rule over us and forces that will determine life or death for each and every one of us. He begins by talking about the rain of sin and death in verses 12 through 14. He begins with the word therefore. And remember, I've, I've told you before, and this is, so, this is so necessary to good, sound, biblical interpretation. It helps us to, uh, to keep from just lifting a, a verse out of context and making it say what we want to say. That word therefore is always a good connecting word. And Paul is using this word again to say, based upon what I have just said and established. Well, what was that? Well, let's look at verse 11. He says, and not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ, what God has done, what God is accomplishing. That is the refrain of chapter 5. It will be the refrain in the the chapters all the way through chapter 8. This is going to be a constant refrain, what God has done through Jesus Christ. We also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, that term of relationship. Justification is the legal work that was accomplished by God through Christ Jesus. We have been reconciled now to him in this relationship. Therefore, he says in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind. Death spread to all mankind because all have sinned. He's already established that back in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, Paul does something here. In your Bible, it's probably a dash. 
There at the end of verse 12, there's probably a dash mark, isn't there, in your Bible? In the Greek text, there's three dots. And what it means is that Paul is having a thought. It's seemingly, Paul is seemingly have a, having a thought here, and, and he disrupts the flow of his thought to back up a little bit and say something in verses 13 and 14 that needs to be clarified before he goes on. It's something that brings clarity to what he is emphasizing here in verse 12. But, but Paul is drifting off from his original thought to back up and say something. And Paul won't really continue this thought in verse 12 until you get down to verse 18 where it picks back up and says, so then. But what has he said in verse 12? Just as though one man sin entered the world. He's talking about Adam. And this is what we're going to have, a contrast, a comparison to Adam and to Christ. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. And then there's kind of a pause and he's reflecting a bit. For, for until the law, sin was, was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone with their, when there is no law. In other words, the law, when it was finally given, there was a great span, expanse of time between the sin of Adam and, and then Moses and the giving of the law. Great expanse of time that uh, would pass. But, but man is without excuse. The wisdom writer said eternity is written into the heart of man. Um, Paul made it very clear back in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Uh, we're all without excuse. You don't need the law to tell you that you're a sinner, uh, that we are without excuse. All of creation itself bears testimony to the handiwork of God's creative power. Is it because I have an awareness of the handiwork of God, it creates a sense of accountability. I don't need the law to tell me that I'm a sinner. It certainly does. The law becomes an objective standard. But until the law maybe. Maybe some were wondering and speculating, well, I wonder if this, this is a sin. I wonder if this is a slight against, against God. And listen, human nature, you and I both know this. Whenever you and I come to a place where we're wondering if something is sin in our life, 99.9999% we know it's sin, right? Eternity is written on our hearts. And so we're without excuse. And then verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by, by Adam. Remember, Adam was commanded by God not to eat of the tree of evil, good and knowledge, the tree of good, of uh, knowledge, good and evil. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of of him who was to come. That is a representation. He is a, he is a type. He, uh, he's someone who established the pattern of all those who would, come, who would come after him. Paul is reiterating what he's already said. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to what Paul has already written in 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 21 through 22. He says, for since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, comparison between Adam and Christ. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now what Paul is doing here, Paul's anticipating a retort from those Jews who might be in the audience. Now Paul's argument is this, there there are those Jews that might, in their rejection of Christ, who might say, well, you know, it's kind of far-fetched. Why one man, why the righteousness of one man, why the obedience of one man would have implications for all humanity. Now, Paul's response to that is what we have here. Paul's response is, is that as a Jewish people, and that's his heritage, he knows where they're coming from. Paul Paul says, you've already accepted the premise that because of one man's disobedience, all of humanity has been impacted. And so it should be an easy segue for you. It should be a natural segue for you that if all of humanity is impacted by one man's disobedience, then all of humanity's livelihood, all humanity's destiny can be impacted by one man's obedience, the one righteous Jew, Jesus Christ himself. Now, part of this, and I think this even would become an issue for us in our, in our culture, in a culture like ours, a Western culture that in our day and time holds forth radical individualism as the highest, greatest virtue. I mean, that's what everyone wants to talk about, their rights, their privilege. This is my right. And so we are part of a culture. We're a subset as followers of Christ. We have those who hold forth Radical individualism, my rights as the highest, greatest virtue. And because of that, we don't see the importance of our actions, our deeds, our thoughts, our beliefs having an impact on those around us. We have lost the social implications of the life that we live. Now, this is old as Scripture itself. You go back to Joshua chapter 7, you think about the aid, uh, the, you think about Achan, the sin of Achan, the conquest of Jericho, the command of God was clear. Listen, you go in there and you level Jericho, but don't, don't any of you take anything. I don't want you to take, remove any of the spoils of war, the bounties of war. I don't want you to take any of it. Well, Achan took it upon himself. He rationalized in his mind, just like Adam did, Surely you will not die. Surely I'm going to miss out on some things if I don't eat this, if I don't participate in this. Achan did the same thing. What I do will have no implications for anyone else. This will be just, this will be just me and no one else. But as you see in the rest of the narrative, the entirety of the children of Israel suffered the consequences because of the sins of one man, one person. It's not unlike a group of survivors on a shipwreck being on a, being on a, a, a rescue boat, a rowboat, and one of them pulls out a, a drill and starts drilling a hole in the bottom, and everybody else on board says, hey, 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 what are you doing? Hey, this doesn't involve you. This is my right. This is my seat. I can do whatever I want to. This is my right. Well, no. Your rights are expected to be exercised with responsibility for a greater communal good. And what you're doing impacts everyone. But when you buy into the rhetoric of the culture, this culture of radical individualism, 
We lose the perspective of community, of communal responsibility that what I do, my deeds, my thoughts and actions have implications for people around me. This is the basis of some of our we don't dialogue well about the social issues that divide us, but this is one of the very issues at stake. This is one of the things that uh, some of these social issues that are so politically charged today, it's why we can't have thoughtful, critical, reasonable conversations because we have two different starting points. You have people who hold forth this kind of radical individualism, my rights, you will not take my rights from me. Whereas the starting place for another group over here is communal responsibility. Let's take a topic, political, politically charged, the topic of, of sanctity of life, what it is to be pro-life. And that is a hotly charged topic, politically charged topic that divides our society. And as a pastor for the past 33 years, the past 20 years here, I have preached ad nauseum that to be pro-life is so much more than to be anti-abortion. We have allowed, sadly, we have allowed, politi we have, we have allowed partisan politics to hijack a topic that belongs to us, the church, the sanctity of life, and to make it a one-dimensional issue like anti-abortion. And we've given that over to politicians. But to be pro-life is so much bigger than being anti-abortion. But for all of our social issues where we as the church advocate justice and are seeking justice, the basis of it is our communal responsibility. Let's take this issue of right to life. Let's take the unborn child. Now, in a culture that holds radical individualism as the greatest virtue, that conversation and the rhetoric that is used in that conversation reflects individual rights. Does a woman, does a woman, we've taken her and we've lifted her out of the context of community over here in, in, in isolation, which is the most degrading thing you can do to an individual is to isolate them away from a community. But we're going to lift this out, this, this person out, this woman out, and we're going to talk, does that woman not have the right, individualism, language of individualism, does that woman not have the right to make decisions regarding her own body? Now, I, I don't want to take a very complex issue and make it simplistic, but I want to show you the importance of rhetoric, the importance of words, the importance of language, the importance of perspective. Let's put this woman back in context and let's begin the conversation this way. Does this mother, that's a communal term, applies responsibility. Does this mother have the right to take the life of the unborn son or daughter that she now carries? Now, part of the disconnect of this conversation with those who are pro-choice and those who are pro-life what those who are pro-choice in their minds when they, when they hear us talking about being pro-life, someone who is pro-choice, they think our starting place is they want control over my uterus. They're trying to control my uterus. They think that our concern is reproductive rights. 
Whereas someone who is pro-life, our starting place is completely different. We're not concerned about the uterus. We're concerned about the life, the child, the community, the implications of this. And again, I don't want to take a complex issue and, and to use simplistic language. I have a disdain for that. But I want us to see the importance of this, that when you have basic tenets, when you have basic foundational principles, like thou shalt not kill, and you're willing to compromise that, when that is no longer something that carries weight, then it becomes, it becomes very easy to recognize that the reign of sin and death is predominant. That sin and death is reigning in the hearts and the minds of the masses. There's another reign in contrast to what Paul is speaking to here. He begins with the reign of sin and death, but notice how he moves to the reign of grace and righteousness. And this is something that far outweighs. Listen, when Paul is comparing, when Paul is comparing Adam and Christ, don't think when you read this, don't think that this is something that is equal and opposite. That this is some opposite that is, that is exactly equal, it's not. Paul's argument is, is that what God has done through Christ Jesus, always through Christ Jesus, is something that is far superior, something that is far greater than the consequences that was caused by Adam's disobedience. Listen, listen to the words he uses. He says, but, and there's the transition from the reign of sin and death. Here's the transition he makes. But the gracious gift, and again, remember, a, a gift is something that has to be received. But the gracious gift is not, is not like the offense. For if, by, for if by the offense of the one, the many died, much more. Underscore that in your Bible because that's a refrain again through these verses. Much more. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. The gift, verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses resulting in justification. Now remember, I've told you whenever we see this word justification and righteousness, there's nothing wrong with just understanding those two as being synonymous. Think of them in the same terms. This is God making things right. This is God riding the ship so that you and I can be right with him, so that you and I can have a relationship with him. Verse 17, for it is by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more will those who receive, again, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, here he is picking up where he left off there in verse 12. So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind. So also through one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. So Paul's setting forth here that we all die because we all sin. 
That's why we all die. We all die because we all sin, uh, not, not, because we, not because we have inherited Adam's sin by virtue of a sexual union between our, our parents, but, but all die because all have sinned. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And then my favorite expression here, he says, the law came in so that the offense would increase. Now then there is no doubt that you know you're a sinner. What you thought subjectively might be sin, what you really knew to be sin, what is written on the hearts of men. Listen, morality and ethics is not a man-made construct. That's something Nietzsche would say. It's not something that is based upon rational principles. It is something that our, our morality, our ethics are something that are written upon our hearts. It comes by divine revelation. The law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased. In other words, God, God doesn't want there to make, be any mistake about what he is doing and the magnitude of what, of what he is doing. But where sin increased, Increased grace abounded all the more. And the reason I love this verse is because of that word that Paul uses in the last clause, but where sin increased grace abounded all the more. In fact, if we were to be more literal in the Greek, it's probably the best way to translate it would be that grace super abounded all the more. And the interesting thing about Paul's use of that word that is translated, best translated is super abounded, grace super abounded all the more, is that Paul in the Greek, Paul is the only one in the entirety of all Greek literature that uses that word. He uses it, uses it once again in 2 Corinthians. But nowhere else in Greek literature do you find this word here that we could translate as superabounded. It is almost like Paul wants us to understand what God has done by his grace through Jesus Christ. Of this grace is of such a magnitude. It's almost like Paul made up his own word. There's no adequate word in the Greek vocabulary to describe the magnitude of God's grace. So I'm going to make one up. God's grace superabounded. So don't ever think that what Christ did is somehow just the opposite equal of what Adam did in sin. Paul's advocacy and what Paul is arguing is that grace overwhelmingly tipped the scales. Listen, church, I don't know where you are, what individuals are here reticent about following Christ, giving their life to Christ, what kind of shame and guilt you wallow in thinking, you know, yeah, I get the whole forgiveness thing. God can probably forgive this, but he could never forgive this, what I do and what I've done. Listen, that's a failure to appreciate this super abounding grace that has overwhelmingly tipped the scales against any sin you've committed. Your sin is not unique. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. But God's grace is super abounding, overwhelming the tip of the scales 
to the sins of humanity. And so Paul moves from this to talking about the reign of eternity and now. So that as sin, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, now keep these words in mind. Keep looking at them as you glance back up at verse 17 where Paul says death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So as Paul talks about life and eternal life, listen, we need to understand that when we talk about being in right relationship with God, when we talk about the righteousness of God that has been accomplished in us through Christ Jesus, being made right with God, it's not just some implication for the sweet by and by. It has very real present tense realities, very present tense application to our lives right now today in the lives that we are to live, in the lives that we are to be about pursuing every waking moment in our lives. So this is not some, as some have tried to do, this is not some argument, the indictment of Adam's sin against all humanity and that somehow this is what God has done through Christ Jesus is some sort of universalistic theology that makes salvation available for anyone. No, this is something that has to be received. It is available to anyone and everyone, but it has to be received. It's a gift that has to be received. That's the language of verse 17, receive. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, it has to be received. And so we're at a point now of choosing. It's a choice none can, can avoid. Each one of us are allowing something to reign over us in our life. And in so doing, you are choosing either life or death. Life or death. One or the other will reign in your life. One or the other will set the tone for your funeral, which is eventually coming. One or the other will determine your destiny and mine. Father, might we determine well what will rule in our life and what shall reign over us. Understanding the implications, not just for eternity, but the implications for the quality of life that we might know and experience even now. So Father, I pray for our time of, of reflection that, Father, we might truly examine the course and the direction of our own lives. What is it that reigns in us? And it is, is it a path that leads to life or is it one that leads to death? Knowing that you have made this super abundant grace available to anyone in all that might receive that gift. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.